Section 19 of The Myths of the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annabel Castaño. The Myths of the New World by Daniel Brinton. Chapter 7, Part 1. Chapter 7. The Myths of the Creation, the Deluge, the Epochs of Nature, and the Last Day. Cosmogonies usually portray the action of the spirit on the waters. Those of the Muscogees, Athapascans, Quiches, Mixtecs, Iroquois, Algonquins, and others. The Flood Myth an unconscious attempt to reconcile a creation in time with the eternity of matter. Proof of this from American mythology. Characteristics of American flood myths. The person saved, usually the first man. The number seven. Their ararats. The role of birds. The confusion of tanks the Aztec, Quiche, Algonquin, Tupi, and earliest Sanskrit flood myths. The belief in epochs of nature, a further result of this attempt at reconciliation. Its forms among Peruvians, Mayas, and Aztecs. The expectation of the end of the world, a corollary of this belief. Views of various nations. Could the reason rest content with the belief that the universe always was as it now is, it would save much beating of brains. Such is the comfortable condition of the Eskimos, the root diggers of California, the most brutish specimens of humanity everywhere, vain to inquire their story of creation, for, like the knife-grinder of anti-Jacobin renown, they have no story to tell. It never occurred to them that the earth had a beginning, or underwent any greater changes than those of the seasons. But no sooner does the mind begin to reflect, the intellect to employ itself on higher themes than the needs of the body, than the law of causality exerts its power, and the man, out of such materials as he has at hand, manufactures for himself a theory of things. What these materials were has been shown in the last few chapters. A simple primitive substance, a divinity to mold it, these are the requirements of every cosmogony. Concerning the first, no nation ever hesitated. All agreed that before time began, water held all else in solution covered and concealed everything. The reasons for this assumed priority of water have been already touched upon. Did a tribe dwell near some great sea, others can be imagined. The land is limited, peopled, stable, the ocean fluctuating, waste, boundless. It insatiably swallows all rains and rivers, quenches sun and moon in its dark chambers, 
and raves against its bounds as a beast of prey. Awe and fear are the sentiments it inspires. In Aryan tongues, its synonyms are the desert and the night. It produces an impression of immensity, infinity, formlessness, and barren changeableness, well suited to a notion of chaos. It is sterile, receiving all things, producing nothing. Hence, the necessity of a creative power to act upon it, as it were to impregnate its barren germs. Some cosmogonies find this in one, some in another personification of divinity. Commonest of all is that of the wind, or its emblem, the bird, types of the breath of life. Thus, the venerable record in Genesis, translated in the authorized version, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters, may with equal correctness be rendered, and a mighty wind brought it on the surface of the waters, presenting the picture of a primeval ocean fecundated by the wind as a bird. The eagle, that in the Finnish epic of Kalevala floated over the waves and hatched the land, the egg that in Chinese legend swam hither and thither until it grew to a continent, the giant Ymir, the rustler, as wind in trees, from whose flesh says the Edda, our globe was made and set to float like a speck in the vast sea between Maspel and Nilfheim, all are the same tale repeated by different nations in different ages. But why take illustrations from the old world when they are so plenty in the new? Before the creation, said the Muscogees, a great body of water was alone visible. Two pigeons flew to and fro over its waves, and at last spied a blade of grass rising above the surface. Dry land gradually followed, and the islands and continents took their present shapes. Whether this is authentic aboriginal myth is not beyond question. No such doubt attaches to that of the Athabascans. With singular unanimity, most of the northwest branches of this stock trace their descent from a raven, a mighty bird whose eyes were fire, whose glances were lightning, and the clapping of whose wings was thunder. On his descent to the ocean, the earth instantly rose and remained on the surface of the water. This omnipotent bird then called forth all the variety of animals. Very similar, but with more of poetic finish, is the legend of the Quiches. This is the first word and the first speech. There were neither men nor brutes, neither birds, fish nor crabs, stick nor stone, valley nor mountain, stubble nor forest, nothing but the sky. The face of the land was hidden. There was naught but the silent sea and the sky. There was nothing joined, nor any sound, nor thing that stirred, neither any to do evil, nor to rumble in the heavens, nor a walker on foot, only the silent waters, only the pacified ocean, only it in its calm. Nothing was but stillness and rest, 
and darkness and the night nothing but the maker and moulder the hurler the bird serpent in the waters in a limpid twilight covered with green feathers slept the mothers and the fathers over this passed huracan the mighty wind and called out earth and straight away the solid land was there the picture writings of the mixtecs preserved a similar cosmogony in the year and in the day of clouds before ever were either years or days the world lay in darkness all things were orderless and the water covered the slime and the ooze that the earth then was by the efforts of two winds called from astrological associations that of nine serpents and that of nine caverns personified one as a bird and one as a winged serpent the waters subsided and the land dried in the birds that here play such conspicuous parts we cannot fail to recognize the winds and the clouds but more especially the dark thunder cloud soaring in space at the beginning of things most forcible emblem of the aerial powers they are the symbols of that divinity which acted on the passive and sterile waters the fitting result being the production of a universe other symbols of the divine could also be employed and the meaning remained the same or were the fancy too helpless to suggest any they could be dispensed with and purely natural agencies take their place thus the unimaginative iroquois narrated that when their primitive female ancestor was kicked from the sky by her irate spouse there was as yet no land to receive her but that it suddenly bubbled up under her feet and waxed bigger so that ere long a whole country was perceptible or that certain amphibious animals the beaver the otter and the muskrat seeing her descent hastened to dive and bring up sufficient mud to construct an island for her residence the muskrat is also the simple machinery in the cosmogony of the takahlis of the northwest coast the osages and some algonquin tribes these latter were indeed keen enough to perceive that there was really no creation in such an account dry land was wanting but earth was there though hidden by boundless waters consequently they spoke distinctly of the action of the muskrat in bringing it to the surface as a formation only michavo directed him and from the mud formed islands and mainland but when the subject of creation was pressed they replied they knew nothing of that or roundly answered the questioner that he was talking nonsense their myth almost identical with that of their neighbors was recognized by them to be not of our construction but a reconstruction only a very judicious distinction but one which has a most important corollary a reconstruction supposes a previous existence this they felt and had something to say about an earth anterior to this of ours but one without light or human inhabitants a lake burst its bounds and submerged it wholly 
This is obviously nothing but a mere and meagre fiction, invented to explain the origin of the primeval ocean. But mark it well, for this is a germ of those marvelous myths of the epochs of nature, the catastrophes of the universe, the deluges of water and of fire, which have laid such strong hold on the human fancy in every land and in every age. The purpose for which this addition was made to the simpler legend is clear enough. It was to avoid the dilemma of a creation from nothing on the one hand and the eternity of matter on the other. Ex nihilo nihil is an apothegm endorsed alike by the profoundest metaphysicians and the rudest savages. But the other horn was no easier. To escape accepting the theory that the world had ever been as it now is was the only object of a legend of its formation. As either lemma conflicts with fundamental laws of thought, this escape was eagerly adopted, and in the suggestive words of Prescott, men sought relief from the oppressive idea of eternity by breaking it up into distinct cycles or periods of time. Vain, but characteristic attempt of the ambitious mind of man. The Hindu philosopher reconciles to his mind the suspension of the world in space by imagining it supported by an elephant, the elephant by a tortoise, and the tortoise by a serpent. We laugh at the Hindu and fancy we diminish the difficulty by explaining that it revolves around the sun and the sun around some far-off star. Just so the general mind of humanity finds some satisfaction in supposing a world or a series of worlds anterior to the present, thus escaping the insoluble enigma of creation by removing it indefinitely in time. The support lent to these views by the presence of marine shells on high lands or by faint reminiscences of local geologic convulsions I estimate very low. Savages are not inductive philosophers, and by nothing short of a miracle could they preserve their remembrance of even the most terrible catastrophe beyond a few generations. Nor has any such occurred within the ken of history of sufficient magnitude to make a very permanent or widespread impression. Not physics, but metaphysics is the exciting cause of these beliefs in periodical convulsions of the globe. The idea of matter cannot be separated from that of time, and time and eternity are contradictory terms. Common words show this connection. World, for example, in the old language wereld, from the root to where, by derivation means an age or cycle. Grim. In effect, a myth of creation is nowhere found among primitive nations. It seems repugnant to the reason. Dry land and animate life had a beginning, but not matter. A series of constructions and demolitions may conveniently be supposed for these. The analogy of nature, as seen in the vernal flowers springing up after the desolation of winter, of the saplings sprouting from the fallen trunk, of life everywhere rising from death, 
suggests such a view. Hence arose the belief in epochs of nature, elaborated by ancient philosophers into the cycles of the Stoics, the great days of Brahm, long periods of time rounded off by sweeping distractions, the cataclysms and ekpirauses of the universe. Some thought in these all beings perished, others that a few survived. This latter and more common view is the origin of the myth of the deluge. How familiar such speculations were to the aborigines of America, there is abundant evidence to show. The early Algonquin legends do not speak of an antediluvian race, nor of any family who escaped the waters. Mitabo, the spirit of the dawn, their supreme deity, alone existed and by his power formed and peopled it. Nor did their neighbors, the Dakotas, though firm in the belief that the globe had once been destroyed by the waters, suppose that any had escaped. The same view was entertained by the Nicaraguans and the Botocudus of Brazil. The latter attributed its destruction to the moon falling to the earth from time to time. Much the most general opinion, however, was that some few escaped the desolating element by one of those means most familiar to the narrator, by ascending some mountain on a raft or canoe in a cave or even by climbing a tree. No doubt some of these legends have been modified by Christian teachings, but many of them are so connected with local peculiarities and ancient religious ceremonies that no unbiased student can assign them wholly to that source, as Professor Vater has done, even if the authorities for many of them were less trustworthy than they are. There are no more common heirlooms in the traditional lore of the red race. Nearly every old author quotes one or more of them. They present great uniformity of outline, and rather than engage in repetitions of little interest, they can be more profitably studied in the aggregate than in detail. By far, the greater number represent the last destruction of the world to have been by water. A few, however, the Takahlis of the North Pacific coast, the Yurucares of the Bolivian Cordilleras, and the Mokovi of Paraguay attributed to a general conflagration which swept over the earth, consuming every living thing except a few who took refuge in a deep cave. The more common opinion of a submersion gave rise to those traditions of a universal flood so frequently recorded by travelers and supposed by many to be reminiscences of that of Noah. End of section 19. Recording by Annabel Castaño.